Well, we are going to continue our series um, on love and hate. We've, uh, we're six weeks into this. We've covered six weeks already. It's getting harder and harder to recap that every week. I feel like I'm almost preaching a sermon before the sermon. So at this point, I'm just going to tell you, it's, if you've missed the last six, it's okay. Each of these kind of stands alone, but there's some good foundational stuff we've been laying as we've moved into this. Um, I do want to just give you maybe a couple sentences on the heart of what we're talking about. Um, I believe that we live in a day and age, not only in the culture that we live in, but in the church environment that we're in, that there's a lot of confusion about how we live in a loving way in the world that we're in. And so this series is about learning to love what God loves and how God loves, and also learning how to hate the things God hates. And that might sound really strange to us, especially because we're in a day and age where there's a lot of hate stirring and it's gross and it's nasty and it's wrong. It's destructive. When God loves or when God hates, excuse me, he hates through the lens of love. God loves people so much that he hates the things that rip us off, that destroy us, that keep us from experiencing the life and the peace and the joy that he has for us. That's reality. And so we spent a couple of weeks defining what God loves and what he hates. Um, then we talked about the fact that we have a, a father who loves us enough to correct us. And so it's actually a sign of his love that he corrects us. All too often, we've learned to experience correction through the lens of I'm being rejected. Somebody's highlighting something in my life that needs to change, and I'm assuming I'm being rejected instead of realizing it's an opportunity for restoration, for healing. Um, for things to, to make sense. Now, we might reject each other through correction, but our Father in heaven loves us, and it's through his love that he corrects. And so our response to that is to confess, acknowledge what's wrong, repent, turn from it, but turn towards him, and then receive forgiveness. And then he invites us into that same kind of life with each other. And so that's kind of what we've been unpacking. Um, and then we talked in some practical terms about how we love God a couple weeks ago, and then last week how we love people. And now we're moving into the real nuts and bolts of this series. So for the next couple weeks, maybe three, we're going to talk about um, living in unity amongst the church body. And I just want to say this, this applies to us right here in this room in our interpersonal relationships with each other here, but it goes beyond these walls. We are a part of a larger family of God. It exists here in our community in Knoxville. It exists all over the world. If we really want to get specific, it exists between heaven and earth. Yeah. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. And so we're going to talk about living in unity. And so that's where we're going this morning. I, I want to say this. This morning is going to be focused on living in relational unity. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about doctrinal unity. That just sounds really appealing, doesn't it? I mean, when you hear the word doctrine, you just get really excited to come to church. Uh, but we're going to talk about doctrinal unity next Sunday. It's going to be really important. I'd encourage you to, to, to be back for that. But this morning is relational unity. How do we walk in unity with one another? So we're going to tackle this in, in three parts. The first thing is Jesus' purpose for us. His purpose for us is to live in unity. Our problem, what's, what are the obstacles to us living in unity? And then finally, what's his plan to do something about that? So here we go. Jesus' purpose for us. Um, I want to encourage you on your own to read through John chapter 13, 
through John chapter 17. I would sit and just soak in that. We're going to pull some bits and pieces from that over the next five minutes or so here. But there is so much more to mine out of this where Jesus really communicates his heart for unity. He demonstrates how we live that way. And then he prays like crazy for us. And so we're going to get a glimpse of each of those three things really quick. So first of all, in John chapter 13, Jesus has just finished washing his disciples' feet. Now, I don't know about you, that sounds really gross to me. Does that sound gross to anybody else? Like washing someone else's feet? It's just me? Y'all are like, no, no big deal. I'm fine with that. No, it's gross. And then we're not just talking about like, you know, I put on a nice pair of dress socks and some nice shoes and went to work and came home and maybe they're a little smelly. This is like first century AD. This is like sandals and dirt and mud and muck and junk and nasty. Like we remember, right? Jesus said, like, I have nowhere to lay my head. These guys were wandering out in the woods, in the wilderness. Feet are gross. I just say that because I, th- I feel like sometimes we, we put this nice little veneer on the scripture that we read. We put this nice, pretty little frame around and go, oh, isn't that sweet? You know, we have maybe these beautiful images, beautiful paintings of Jesus just sitting there washing the disciples' feet. And what a meaningful moment. It's like, this was gross. <laughs> this was gross. And listen, this is backwards from the way we do things. It's gross enough to wash somebody's feet. The guy in charge is definitely not washing somebody's feet. But Jesus told him, you've seen me as your teacher, as your guide, as your leader. This is how you lead. You humble yourself and you wash each other's feet. You're willing to get down into the nitty gritty, into the dirty, into the muck. Relationally speaking, we walk through a whole lot of junk and it gets messy along the path. But Jesus would come and teach us how to wash each other's feet. That's the image, that's the picture he gives us. And so he finishes doing this and he gets up from this and one of the things he says is found here in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So he's, I mean, he's just given them a very real, tangible picture. And he starts talking about the cross. So he's given them a picture of washing their feet and he's heading towards the cross and he's saying, this is the command that I give you. Love each other like that. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another that simple. You know how people are going to figure out that Jesus is really awesome and special and that that we belong to him? People are going to look at us and go, wow, those people know how to love each other. That's Jesus' vision for unity. That's his heart for us. He goes on from there and in John chapter 17, after spending some time talking with him about a few different issues, he then prays. He has this whole long kind of prayer to the Father, right there in front of the disciples. He wants them to hear what he's praying. He's praying for them. And a good portion of the way into this prayer, he starts to pray for you and I. Isn't that cool? On the night Jesus was betrayed, he prayed for you. 
I love that. I wonder what he prayed for us. Let's check it out. John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, talking about the disciples that were sitting around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Anybody in here believe in Jesus? You've heard somebody preach about him. You've read the Bible. Then that's you. You've heard through their word. Lost my place. That, sorry, verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us. And then here we hear it again, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So he continues to emphasize, this is how the world's gonna know this is real. That God is real, that Jesus is real by the love that my people have for one another. They're gonna love each other so much, it's gonna look like they're one person. There's gonna be unity. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. This is Jesus' prayer for us. Now, I hope we can grasp this for just a minute. If Jesus took time to pray for this, that means it's gonna take an intervention from the living God for this to happen. It is going to take a miracle of God for us to live in love with one another. If it was simple, he would have just said, hey guys, y'all work on that. And then he'd talk about something else and he'd pray about something else. This is what he prayed for us. He knew it was going to take a miracle for us to learn to live in unity. It takes the power and presence of the living God who himself knows how to love perfectly, who himself for all eternity has lived in unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and who then created us out of love to say, I want to share that really cool love with you. But guess what? We're broken. I mean, do we read those two verses and go, man, that just looks like exactly what I've always experienced in church. <laughs> I mean, Jesus just nailed it. That's everything I've ever felt whenever I've walked into a church building or hung out with people who took the name of Jesus. That's exactly what I've always seen. We're laughing to kind of keep from like crying, right? Because we haven't seen this. I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here, but I, I've wrestled with this thought a lot with, with friends of mine over the years about why don't we see more miracles in the church in America? Why don't we see more healings? Why don't we see people raised from the dead? I mean, that, that happens in church circles today around the globe. And, and I think there's maybe a few reasons, but you know what I honestly believe? I believe that we've missed the biggest miracle of all that we need Jesus to work. And that is relational unity. If we're living in broken relationships with each other, when the church can't get along, how can we then say, God, would you come heal this physical thing? He's saying, hey, listen, I care about that physical need, but like, you're broken. My body is harming itself. We need a miracle of God in our generation to heal relationships. And I believe if we started to pray and recognize what a miracle we need to walk in relational unity, as we watch God heal that, we might just be bold enough to link arms together and say, God, would you heal this too? Something might shift. Something might change. 
Because when you watch God come do the impossible, you start to believe that the impossible is possible. That's how God operates. And so Jesus saw how important this was and he saw what a need we would have. And so before he even went to the cross, he stopped to say, Father in heaven, would you help them walk in this kind of unity? They're going to need us. They're going to need us. And that's what Jesus was unpacking just two chapters earlier in John 15 when he talked about abiding in him. Apart from him, this is impossible. But with him, it becomes possible. Let's just get a glimpse of this. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 13. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that you can have a miserable life trying to love people. Okay, good, you're paying attention. That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He had to tell us that because we, we don't believe that. Because the starting point is sacrifice. That's the starting point. The starting point is preferring others over myself. That doesn't sound joyful at all. Arranging for my comfort, arranging for my happiness, removing myself from painful or difficult situations, that sounds great. That sounds joyful. But Jesus says, actually, if you'll learn to abide in me and love each other and walk this out, there is hope that you can experience great joy. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Man, every now and then I just read a Bible verse, and I'm like, I really wish that one wasn't in there. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, Jesus knew what he was talking about. He wasn't just throwing out pearls of wisdom and saying, good luck with that. His physical life on this earth was an embodiment of this. He walked this earth laying down his life for others. And the natural conclusion to that led him all the way to the cross, loving all of us like that, laying down his life. Now, this all sounds wonderful. It sounds great. The idea of living in unity, of experiencing perfect love. I mean, it just sounds wonderful. We talk about it here a lot. Our heart is that we would be a relational body that loves each other well. And when you write those things down on paper, it just sounds great and inviting. It takes work to live that out. It takes a miracle for that to happen in our midst. And the problem is this dying to self. That's what's so difficult. See, the byproduct Jesus is saying here of loving one another is peace and it's unity and it's joy. But the reality is it's difficult. And so that leads us to number two, our problem. The primary obstacle to us living in unity, the primary obstacle is selfishness. It is. Now, I'm not saying in any given situation we can't step back and really look at the situation and what's happened here and what has this person done or what has this person done, but the, the primary underpinning of our relational brokenness is selfishness. It's selfishness. Living for self above him. There is a massive lie that we hear all day, every day in our culture. I don't know if y'all are aware of this. 
I believe you are. But it's this lie that says, do what makes me happy as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. And the root of all the compromise and all the wounding and all the harm that has been done is that we believe it. Or we at least don't stand up and speak some truth against it. We believe that it's actually possible to do what makes me happy as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. That's like the description of the word selfish. And it assumes something that's not possible. And see, one of the biggest dangers, even in our personal relationship with Jesus, is saying the word personal relationship with Jesus as if I can experience that over here by myself on an island. He adopted me into something. Am I a, am I a, am I a, a only child? Was I adopted to be an only child in God's kingdom? No. I have been adopted into a family. I am meant to live in community with other people. And that is inherently messy. It's inherently painful. See, here's the reality. If, if we would step back and go, okay, what's the gospel? The gospel is, I can't, he can. The gospel is, I'm hopeless apart from him. The gospel is, I am lost and dead in my transgression and sin, but grace, the grace of God. But see, if I let that trickle down into the way I viewed all of us, it would make sense why it would be messy. We're not a collection of amazing, wonderful people who have it all together. We're a collection of people who raise their hand and say, oh, God, help. God, I'm a mess. I'm in need. And he said, I got you. I love you. Come into my family. And I'm going to do this really cool thing that makes no sense. I'm going to put you in this family where it's messy and it's hard and it's difficult, but I'm actually using it to do something miraculous in your heart and life. I'm, whether, whether we mean it or not, when we say, Jesus, come be my Lord and Savior, he takes it very seriously. And he says, okay, I will. I'll be your Savior. I'm going to rescue you from sin. I'm going to rescue you from selfishness. I'm going to rescue you from the things that are killing you. You want me to be your, your Lord? I'll do it. I'll come lead you into something amazing. And those rough edges that I want to work off in your life, they're going to get rubbed off as you start bumping into each other. And so he uses that. He uses that. Now, I'm not just saying the primary obstacle is selfishness. I want you to see this. And the truth is, I mean, honestly, I told Alex this morning, I said, this is a really hard message to prepare for because the message is read the New Testament. <laughs> like if you start just trying to read through the scripture and figure out the verses that talk about unity or that talk about what creates disunity, it's like through the whole thing. All these letters to the churches were addressing this issue amongst others. And so I was like, how do I pick and choose? So I don't know. These are the ones I picked. I, I, just open your Bible and read it. and You'll come across a whole bunch. You, that would be good for you. But in James chapter 4, James talks about um, the quarrels and the things that just come up. The arguments, the strife, the things that create disunity in our relationships. And he says really simply in James chapter 4 verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You want stuff. You want something you're not getting. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your own passions. And he goes so far as to say, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What he's saying is, when, when we let the mindset of the world and the culture that we live in, when we let that come near and draw in close and we adopt it as our own, it does great damage. It's like cheating on God. It sends mixed messages. And so instead, I let him come in and him teach me how to love and how to serve. And he says it's through sacrifice. He says yourself gets in the way. Your desires get in the way. That's the problem. So James says, listen, the core of the issue is selfishness. And then how this plays out, it's this little instrument you've got right here. This is how it plays out. It's an issue of selfishness that works its way out. James chapter 3, going back one chapter, verses 2 through 5. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's talking about speaking, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. I picked out some of the nicer parts. <laughs> I mean, he actually starts talking about the, the tongue almost being an instrument of hell. Like this thing gets in the way. It starts with selfishness. I have a problem with somebody. I have an encounter that's got me bent out of shape or whatever. And then the tongue comes into play and we just tear each other up with it. We tear each other up with it. So what do we do about this? I, mean, I don't want to spend all the time this morning just focused on the problem, but like, let's just call it what it is. Selfishness gets in the way and then we open our mouths. And our mouths do any number of things. Our, our mouths say direct hurtful things to a person and then want them to just kind of forget it and move on like it was no big deal. When it's not, it is a big deal. Our mouths do things like talk about other people or they complain and gossip, slander, complaining. These are all things that are talked about throughout the New Testament that just rip apart the body of believers. So there's direct ways that we hurt each other and indirect ways that we cause harm. And it's rooted in selfishness. I'm not happy with something that's happened in my life. And yet God says the solution is be selfless, sacrifice, love others. So what's, what's his plan? If that's, if that's a glimpse at the problem, what's his plan? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Really simply, he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Here, I, just, I just have to tell you, unity doesn't happen by accident. In a lot of ways, unity is, is much like salvation. There is a moment in time where I say yes to Jesus. And what happens in that moment? I'm his, right? I'm saved. I'm forgiven. I belong to him. I'm in his family. Why don't we rapture immediately to heaven after we say yes to Jesus? 
Because there's all kinds of stuff he's now working out in our hearts and lives. Well, unity is like that. When I say yes to Jesus, I belong to a family that I'm in, I'm a part. But I actually have to work to maintain that unity. And so Paul writes in Ephesians, says, be eager to maintain it. Keep it. Fight for it. Work at it. Maintain it. I, I feel a little... Um, a little uh, unqualified to use this as an example, but actually I think that's a good reason why I can use it as an example. I've noticed something about my yard. It doesn't stay looking nice. That's very true in my case. It, like, it's never looking nice. But unfortunately, I can't just go mow my yard one time and then there it is. Or just throw out the mulch once and it's perfect. Or trim those hedges one time and it's done. It needs maintained. It's a living, breathing thing. It's a living, breathing thing. It needs time. It needs attention. It needs nurturing. It needs things cut out that shouldn't be there. It needs weeds pulled. It needs dead branches trimmed. It needs to, to have attention paid to it in order to maintain it, to keep it healthy and living and doing well. That's our unity. Things are healthy and good, and you're united with people today. Sweet. Be thankful. Celebrate it. Now work to maintain it. Don't let the little weeds come in. Don't let the little foxes root in and begin to create problems. Let's address it. And so let's be eager to maintain it. So what I want to do for about five or ten minutes here um, to kind of bring this all together is we're going to go to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 11. And we're going to look at some of, some of the, the prescriptions, some of the solutions that Jesus gives us. Paul's writing here and saying, this is how you guys can walk in unity together. Do this stuff. Proactively do this. So if we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, let's realize these things. First of all, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. He starts out by saying, talking about within our body, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. What's the point? We're different, but we're the same. One of the first things that will help me walk in unity is realizing when I look at my friend Thomas, how Thomas is doing is how I'm doing. If things are rough for him, they're rough for me. If things are good for him, they're good with me. I'm told to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. We've got to start having the mindset that I am not this individual, isolated person. I am a part of something. There's a reason God doesn't just stop and say we're part of a family. He says we're part of a body. He wants to make it really clear how connected we are. And so we're a part of this body. We're united and realizing, identify with people in the body. Realize we're together, we're one. We might view things differently, we might look at some things differently. Uh, we've got different approaches to life, but in Jesus, we are united and we are one. And what affects one affects the other. And so just realize that, identify with people. Okay, next, number two. Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Why would we put all those things on? Because we are going to have to bear with one another. 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Listen, I think on a really practical level there, we just need to understand we're actually going to have to bear with one another. Like, let's just get that out of the way. We're going to screw up. We're going to blow it. You will and other people around you will. That is going to happen. And so we prepare ourselves for that in advance to have a sense of compassion in order to have a sense. I want to read some of those things back to you again. Compassionate hearts. I I cannot be compassionate if I'm just looking at myself. It forces me to look outward, to have compassion on someone else, and then to walk in kindness. So there's there's times where the, the issue that's going on with me and somebody else is going to require me being compassionate and kind towards them. They're the one who is offended. They're the one who is hurt, and I'm the one that's been offended. There are other times where the next word becomes really important, humility, because I'm the one in need of kindness and mercy and understanding because I've blown it. And so I walk in humility because maybe it was me. I think it was them, but maybe it was me. Meekness and then finally, patience. This one drives me nuts. I want it fixed right now. I want it all better like that. It just isn't sometimes. And so we have to be patient and endure with each other. I want to read a quote to you. I, I highly recommend this book. It's called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Really good book about how we walk out biblical unity. Um, but I want to read this, and this is about, this is in a very practical level. How do we, when there's a specific issue, there's a specific problem, I've blown it or someone else has, how do we work that out? And he talks about our approach to this. So this is found on pages 27 and 28. There are also some interesting contrasts between the various responses to conflict. First, there's a difference in focus. (laughs) Like, for example, mine right now is focusing on my two daughters running around the back of the room. (laughs) There might be a conflict we need to resolve later, girls. All right, let me read this again. (laughs) There are also some interesting contrasts between the various responses to conflict. First, there's a difference in focus. Please hear this. When I resort to an escape response, so when my, op- when my desire is to opt out, there's a conflict, there's a problem, I just want out. I want to deal with it. I want to pull back, I want to pull away. I'm generally focusing on me. I'm trying to protect myself. I'm looking for what is easy, convenient, or non-threatening for myself. When I use an attack response, when I'm like, oh no, I'm all about resolving this conflict, baby, let's go. You know, you know, sometimes there's those people that are far too eager to dive into the conflict, to fix it. But if it's with an attack response, then I'm generally focused on you. Blaming you and expecting you to give in and solve the problem. It's you. You've blown it. You've messed up. And you're the problem. Y'all hearing that? Our, our two general responses are either to pull back and protect ourselves or to step in with an attitude of, of, of blaming. They're the issue. But he says, when I use a peacemaking response, my focus is on us. I am aware of everyone's interests in the dispute, especially God's. God's desire is that his children walk in unity. And I'm working towards mutual responsibility in solving a problem. 
if, if anything could shift in our hearts, there, there's all kinds of things that we can learn in resolving conflict. But the primary thing, the first thing that could shift is realizing it's not me versus you or you versus me, it's us. We're in this together. How do we work this out? Because we're one body, we're united. And so we approach it with that sense of unity. If I'm confronting a member of the body, I need to ask myself, what's my desire or what's the purpose? If it's to blame, defend, or justify, I'm missing the boat. It should be about reconciling. If I'm not ready to reconcile, maybe I should step back and wait, pray a little more. Ask that miracle-working God to come work the miracle in my heart first and in theirs as well. God, would you prepare the ground for this so we can step in and resolve this? All right, let's continue in Colossians, Jacob. We're going to skip that next section, buddy. Verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I just want to stop and say this here. We've talked about it already. Love is not warm and fuzzy feelings. Those can be an expression of love. Those can be things we experience at points when we're in a love relationship. But love is an act of the will. Love is an act to say, I'm... I want the good of this person. I want their good in this situation. And so we love one another and it helps us walk in perfect harmony. And then what are practical things we can do when there's no problem, right? That's when there's a problem, we approach it as an us thing and we work to resolve it. We work to see God make peace. But what about when there's not a problem? We can, we can foster unity amongst each other before there's ever a problem. And it makes it a lot easier then to deal with the problem because we've built a relationship that has a solid foundation. And so we can do that by walking out these next couple of verses. Colossians 3, verse 15 and 16. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. Here's what he's saying in corporate gatherings. Now that can be here on a Sunday morning, but that's any time that we're together with other believers. We can practice soaking in God's word, mutually sharing wisdom with each other. We can sing about Jesus together and we can experience corporate thankfulness. Let's be thankful together for how good God is. Let's celebrate things that he has done. If we are walking out that together, I mean, if you hang out with people soaking in God's word, worshiping together, mutually encouraging one another and being thankful, it's really hard to hold a grudge against people like that. That lays the groundwork for a safe place where we can come and resolve problems. It's not that hard to love people when we do that. And then finally, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our daily life and our actions and conversations, let's bring Jesus into the center of it. I wonder how often the conflict even began because my Savior is not present. He is, but I'm not consciously thinking, Jesus, you're right here in the middle of this conversation you care about this person. You care about what's going on right here and inviting him into the middle of it. And I do think it's interesting to note that Paul, in these few short verses, said the word thanks or thankful over and over and over again. Here's what I know happens in my own heart. 
there, there is a basic concept. It's like gravity in our relationships. And gravity comes along and it, it pulls us towards the negative. It pulls us downward. Even just time passing pulls us that way. I mean, I've had relationships where I go a little off talking to somebody and I start to forget which one of us it was that didn't call the person back and I start to think they're ignoring me and they don't love me and there's a problem and it's just the lack of communication leads toward the negative. And then because this gets us in trouble, even when we're not realizing it or intending it, we say and do things that hurt and it goes down. So if we practice a mentality of thankfulness, God, thank you for who you are, thank you for my life, thank you for this relationship, thank you for these people, when we participate and and, in actively thanking God, it builds positive thoughts instead of negative thoughts. I can't thank God for my wife over and over and over again and celebrate how awesome she is and how grateful I am for her. That is going to combat against the negative thoughts that come in. It's like ammunition against it. Being thankful reinforces the true things and it reinforces love. The reality is my wife loves me. Yeah, she did that annoying thing last night, but she loves me. She's there for me. She's faithful to me. And I remember those things and it reinforces the good. If we would contribute towards health and then we'd be willing to address problems one-on-one with that person relationally because we are us, not me and you, we can begin to walk in unity. And every bit of this, none of this can be done apart from Jesus and it's not meant to be. Jesus wants to come alongside of us and help us walk this out. That's the abiding in him part that we talked about at the beginning. And so we abide in him, we receive from him what we need and we learn more and more how to maintain healthy relationships, how to prefer others above ourselves. I walk under the assumption that if there's a problem, it's probably my selfishness. And so God, how can I love and sacrifice and prefer someone else above me?